Welcome to Advancing Worsening Heart Failure Treatment, exploring cutting-edge therapies and addressing disparities. I'm Dr. Bob Underwood. I'm joined today by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Aaron Mikos, Director of Women Cardiovascular Health Research and Associate Director of Preventive Cardiology at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Co-Director of the Impact Center at Johns Hopkins University, and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Preventive Cardiology. For full relevant financial disclosure information, please see iridiumce.com slash HF. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Merck, Sharp, and Dome, and we would like to thank them for their support for this initiative. The learning objective for this program is to describe innovative medical and device-based strategies for prevention or treatment of worsening heart failure. Dr. Mikos, welcome back. Thank you for having me back on your program. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get started, can you start us off with some information on edema in worsening heart failure? Yeah, so edema is one of the primary manifestations of worsening heart failure. So what's happening as heart failure is progressing, there's this overstimulation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, or RAS, as well as the sympathetic nervous system. And this leads to promotion of sodium and water retention. When there is atrial and ventricular stretch, natriuretic peptides are released to compensate for the overstimulation of the RAS system. But as disease progresses, the natriuretic peptides lose their effectiveness. And then there's this downward spiral where there is more sodium retention, more volume and pressure overload, more vasoconstriction, and this leads to adverse structural modeling of the heart, the vasculature, and the kidney, including fibrosis and left ventricular hypertrophy. So you kind of already, I think, alluded to it a little bit, water retention. So why are diuretics commonly used in worsening heart failure? Sure. So diuretics are the mainstay to manage edema. So uh, again, they don't have a class one indication for heart failure per se, but they play an important role to, for decongestion for management of edema. If initiated in the outpatient setting, initiating early, that might help prevent further progression, um, worsening of heart failure to help keep people out of the hospital. Sometimes we even have the emergence of bridge clinics where sometimes for heart failure patients, we can even give them a course of, of IV Lasix in the clinic to help keep them out of the hospital. Usually loop diuretics are what we're using for heart failure for decongestion. These work by blocking the reabsorption of sodium and chloride in the loop of Henle in the kidneys, and that causes more water to be excreted. Potassium is excreted as well, so there can be hypokalemia, there you know, are there electrolyte imbalances, so you do have to monitor labs. And the common loop diuretics that we use are furosemide, terosemide, and then there's other diuretics that we use, including hydrochlorothalazide, dimetide, and chlorothalidone. Absolutely. So we're going to move on a little bit. So the recently soluble guanylate cyclase, or SGC, has been recognized as a target for the treatment of worsening heart failure. So can you describe how heart failure affects the production of cyclic guanosine monophosphate, or CGMP, in reference to the nitric oxide SGC-CGMP pathway. 
Yeah, so that's a big question, and I want to get into that minute. But first, before we talk about soluble monocyclic stimulators, I just want to emphasize to our audience, and we're going to get into this in our segment three episodes, about the four pillars of HEFREF therapy, which all have class one indications. So that includes an ACE and ARB or an ARNI, evidence-based beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and SGLN2 inhibitors. So those are really the foundation for HEFREF treatment. But you asked about novel and emerging therapies. So let's get back to soluble guanylate cyclase. So nitric oxide-dependent soluble guanylate cyclase stimulation triggers the production of cyclic GMP. So in turn, cyclic GMP has a lot of favorable properties. It promotes vasodilation. It inhibits smooth muscle proliferation and another number of other favorable vascular effects. And this really helps regulate vascular tone, cardiac remodeling, and cardiac contractility. However, soluble guanylate cyclase pathway is disrupted in heart failure. In heart failure, there's endothelial dysfunction, so that results in decreased production of nitric oxide. Reactive oxygen species, ROS, uh, are associated with inflammation that also bind to nitric oxide. And so nitric oxide stimulation of guanylate cyclase is reduced in heart failure. And this results in insufficient GMP or the lack of cyclic GMP associated with cardiac dysfunction, you know, and exacerbates endothelial dysfunction. So this is where it comes in these new therapies, these soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators. So they increase the activity of guanylate cyclase, and that leads to more production of cyclic GMP. But what's really important or notable is that the soluble guanylate cyclase stimulators actually enhance soluble guanylate cyclase activity independent of nitric oxide. They also can help increase sensitivity of soluble guanylate cyclase to endogenous nitric oxide, but kind of works independently of nitric oxide, which may be low in the heart failure state. So these agents lead to more cyclic GMP. And as I mentioned, cyclic GMP has these potential beneficial effects in heart failure, like vasodilation, improving endothelial function, decreasing fibrosis, and improving remodeling of the heart that can help with cardiac function. So you're saying even if nitric oxide production is low, that by addressing the SGC, that we can still stimulate the CGMP, which is necessary for a healthy function. Absolutely. You summarized that much more succinctly than I did. Oh, no, it's phenomenal because it's novel to mm-hmm. think of it in that pathway. Yeah. So we actually have a first-in-class guanylate cyclase stimulator. It's Vericiguat. And so this is a once-daily oral guanylate cyclase stimulator, and it was improved back in 2021 after the Victoria trial, which I could talk about that trial. But its indication is for patients who have chronic heart failure, despite guideline-directed medical therapy, who have HEFREF, an ejection fraction less than 45%, who have been hospitalized for heart failure or being treated as an outpatient with IV diuretics. So this is sort of more of the more advanced or worsened heart failure. So you already made mention of the Victoria trial. So let's talk about that clinical trial and the evidence that supports the use of Vericiguat in worsening heart failure. 
Yeah, so the Victoria trial compared variciguat to placebo in patients with HEFREF. So they all had worsening heart failure, an ejection fraction less than 45%, and they had elevated natriuretic peptide levels. There was about 2,500 patients in each arm. Like a lot of cardiovascular trials, 75% of the patients were male. The average ejection fraction in the trial baseline was 28%. It was a relatively short trial. It was only around 11 months. The primary Mm. outcome was the composite of either cardiovascular death or first hospitalization for heart failure. And the Verisiguat, it met the primary endpoint. There was a significantly lower of the primary outcome, which was, again, death from cardiovascular cause of first hospitalization in the Verisiguat arm, 10% lower, hazard ratio 0.90, which was statistically significant. It was a short trial, so it didn't quite meet statistical significance for cardiovascular death, although that trended favorably. It was significantly reduced, you know, the heart failure for hospitalization outcome, which overall drove the primary outcome. Overall adverse events, even serious adverse events were similar between the two groups. Actually, rates of hypotension and syncope uh, were similar between the groups without a statistical significance. One thing that was a little surprising to me that was anemia was a little bit more common in the Verisiguat group than placebo. But I mean, I would be more worried by the mechanism for hypotension because of the vasodilatory effects. And that wasn't different between the two groups. Right. Now, got it. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about some monitoring devices. What's been some interesting developments around monitoring devices? You know, first, what are some baseline stuff and what are some new stuff? Okay, great. One more thing about Verisiguat, just to let oh, yeah. you know what the current guidelines say. So the 2022 AHA, ACC Heart Failure Society guideline did give it a class 2B indication okay. saying that it can be used in selective high-risk patients with HEFREF and worsening heart failure already on guideline-directed medical therapy to reduce heart failure hospitalizations, cardiovascular death. So it's in the guidelines as a 2B indication. So hopefully more to come on that. But you brought up another kind of emerging innovative area, and that's the use of monitoring devices for worsening yeah. heart failure. So I think we talked about episode one, that heart failure is a chronic condition that's punctuated by periods of instability. So medical devices potentially can be useful monitoring devices and identifying worsening symptoms as quickly as possible, maybe even before symptoms are are clinically manifest. And these devices that continually monitor patient hopefully can catch them earlier than intermittent clinical analysis, like when patients come in for office visits. So they're both invasive devices and non-invasive devices. We can talk about both of them, but the invasive implantable device is a, a small sensor that's implanted in the pulmonary artery and the sensor measures and records pulmonary artery pressures. And then that information is transmitted back to the patient's cardiologist. And so hopefully that can be actionable to act on that data. And we can talk about the data supporting that, such as from the COMPASS trial. Yeah. Again, the technology advances. We kind of made mention of that in episode one, but the technology advances are just really coming to fruition and being applied to patients in need. And it's great to see the what we thought was novel actually being used therapeutically and diagnostically. I just think it's great. So what do you think about the potential of wearable monitoring devices for detecting worsening heart failure? 
I think I mentioned to the audience about the Compass trial. So let me just go back, finish up my um, about the implantable, and yeah. then we can talk about what's happening with wearables. Yeah, because we have the implantable actually does have an FDA indication. So the Compass heart failure trial was a single blind but randomized trial. It was relatively small, 274 patients who all had class three or class four heart failure that were being treated for worsening heart failure over the previous six months. And as I mentioned, this is a implantable continuous hemodynamic device. Now, unfortunately, and it was a small trial, the primary efficacy endpoint was not met. So that should be taken into consideration. But when they did a retrospective analysis, they showed there was a 36% reduction in first hospitalizations for heart failure in the monitored group and that adjustments in medications, you know, meaning that people were acting on them from the data and adjusting medications, that was also more common in the monitored group. So the FDA initially approved one of these devices, CardioMEMS, in class three heart failure, and then it's been recently expanded. The FDA now has expanded the indication to even use in class two heart failure who's had uh, worsening symptoms. But, you know, again, there still needs to be more data about the clinical utility of this. And the 2022 HAACC Heart Failure Society guidelines just gave a 2B indication for these devices. So that's, you know, a relatively weaker indication, but can be used selectively. They said in select adults who have a class three heart failure and have had a heart failure hospitalization in the past year, who've had elevated BMP despite maximally tolerated guideline-directed medical therapy, and who've already been optimized with devices such as CRT devices, that the usefulness of these wireless pulmonary artery monitors may possibly reduce the risk of subsequent heart failure hospitalization, but warrants further study. Yeah, exactly. It warrants for further study. You said retrospectively, they kind of went back and looked at the data and 30% reduction in first hospitalization. Now, potentially because people are making decisions and doing some outpatient adjustment to medications and therapy to keep them out of the hospital, which is is a great thing in and of itself. So I think it's a cool study. I'm looking forward to hearing more about what comes next in further research. So now let's get over to the wearable devices. What are your thoughts on wearable monitoring devices for worsening heart failure? Yeah. So, you know, one of the limitations of what we were talking about before is that that device was implantable in the pulmonary artery. So that's, (laughs) you know, invasive. So can you wear something to be able to detect worsening heart failure? Well, wearable devices are in development and have the advantage of being convenient. They can be placed at a patient's home. They're not invasive. A pilot study had previously shown that participants were able to be able to correctly attach the device and get reliable heart measurements. So there is one example of a newer wearable device is one that uses radio frequency signals to assess the wearer's thoracic fluid index and again, alert their clinician if needed. And so last year at the American College of Cardiology 2023 meeting, the BMAD trial was presented as a small trial, a single trial uh, looking at this device, but they did suggest that there was reduced hospitalizations within 90 days. It should be noted that this was not a randomized controlled trial, this sort of proof of concept. So it really warrants further study and studied in different patient populations. But it's really encouraging that maybe something that they can wear can actually keep people out of the hospital. 
But one thing that comes up with all of these kind of wearable devices, including things from smartwatches that detect heart rates and arrhythmias, is who manages all this data? Patients can send all this data in, and do we have the infrastructure in our system to be able to you know, interpret all this data, make actionable advice related on that. And how do you, you know, have the time and the effort and the staff to like potentially. So we really also need new models of healthcare to kind of incorporate these expanding uses of technology for health. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, a bright horizon you and I talked about in the last episode as well, where, where is AI going to start fitting into that? You know, I'm drowning in data, but starving for information. Can AI help turn all of that data into useful information for us to make clinical decisions for our patients? So it's just exciting in what's going to be next. And one of the things I've always loved about medicine is constantly advancing, constantly growing. So thanks. We've reached the end of this episode. And Dr. Mikos, thank you so much. We'd also like to thank Merck for their support of the program. Be sure to claim your CME by filling out the evaluation and the post-test. And don't miss out on the next two episodes in this four-part series. Be sure to follow Iridium on X, Facebook, LinkedIn to see corresponding MedEd threads. 